If you're a veteran or military spouse of an early stage startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneur experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or are looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of The Bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of the Bunker Labs branding team. The following episode of The Transition is an audio masterclass on how to build a world-class pitch deck with William Lutz, a Navy veteran and general manager for entrepreneurship, commercialization, and enterprise development at New Jersey's Innovation Institute, located at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. I met Will through NJIT's new business competition earlier this year, where I took home first place for my venture, Ironbound Media. Will helped me put together a world-class deck, and I was blown away by his knowledge and expertise. As a startup founder and investor with multiple exits under his belt, Will knows a thing or two about pitch decks and how to convey confidence to potential investors. With so many of you raising money from investors and participating in your own pitch competitions, I knew I had to get Will on the transition to teach you how to put together a world-class deck. This episode is a little longer than usual, and to be honest, it was actually a lot longer, but I decided to cut some of it because I didn't want you all to miss out on all the amazing information. So after a short intro with Will, we jump straight into his steps for building a world-class deck. This is definitely an episode you don't want to miss, so get out some pen and paper to capture some knowledge bombs. For next week's newsletter on Substack, I'll recap some of his key points with a list of the information for your reference as well. By the end of this episode, you'll have everything you need to know to put together a strong deck. Quick disclaimer, in my haste and anxiousness to finally get Will on the transition, I accidentally ran my microphone through my laptop and not my mixer, so you'll notice a slight change in the sound of my audio. Will does the majority of talking this episode anyway, so bear with me and don't let it distract you from the real meat and potatoes of this episode, which is Will's content. Now, make sure you subscribe to the Transition Newsletter on Substack at the link in our show notes. I release a newsletter once a week on Tuesday mornings with actionable tips and advice you can apply to your venture. This past week, I wrote about the importance of finding a minimum viable audience. Substack allows you to leave comments on the newsletter and podcast episodes. That way you can let me know what topics you'd like me to cover either on the show or write about in the newsletter. In addition, if you're interested in contributing to the newsletter with a post, email me at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org. This episode of The Transition is brought to us by the MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, the foundation also provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that it accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. What is going on, everyone? You guys are in for a real treat today as I have uh, Mr. William Lutz with me from the New Jersey Institute of Technology's uh, Venture Link Program uh, to talk with us today about how to build a pitch deck. Will, what's going on? Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm great, Iron Mike. Uh, how are you doing? Excited I'm, to be here. Excited to be doing this. I'm fired up. You know, one of the things with this platform, we get a lot of veterans in the Bunker Lab ecosystem who reach out to us and, uh, you know, ask us to cover some topics. And one of the things that keeps coming up is uh, how to put together a pitch deck. So there's a lot of these veteran pitch competitions. It's a great opportunity for small businesses and uh, tech startups to receive, you know, some seed capital to launch. You know, I'm the recipient of 
I don't know, maybe $50,000 in, uh, in grant money through pitches. And so um, I feel like it would, I feel like to go to the source. And uh, Bunker, listen up, listen up. One of the reasons I reached out to Will was when I was putting the pitch deck together for Ironbound Media, um, I worked with Will because I was competing in the uh, New Jersey NJIT New Business Model Competition. The New Business Model Competition, yeah. And they gave us opportunity to have office hours. And so I signed up, found out Will was a veteran. We hit it off uh, real quick. And, uh, man, he helped me put together an amazing pitch deck. And if I'm being honest, you really helped me dial in my business model about how I talk about Ironbound Media, you know, internally and externally. And it's been, you know, on the up and up ever since. And when we met, I was literally, I had literally just launched this business. So I was still conceptualizing some things in my head. And so, um, you know, it's just great having you here. And I think we're going to drop a lot of the knowledge uh, to the Bunker Lab ecosystem. Oh, we're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be great. Um, it, you, and you're hitting on some really interesting points and important points right off the bat here. A pitch deck is one thing, and it is sort of the backbone to how we tell a story, but it's very much about storytelling and understanding your audience and how you position and communicate what it is you're doing. And it's something that I, I actually think military veterans are particularly well poised to do. Maybe we need some translation help going from, from veteran speak to commercial speak or business speak, but we're good storytellers. It, it's something that a lot of military vets are good at. I'm really excited to chat today about it. I want to go ahead and jump into Will's uh, secret sauce for, uh, for nine slides that every pitch deck needs. And um, he's going to walk us through this. And I think you all are going to get a lot of great um, feedback. So if you have pencil, pencil and paper, pull it out, pull up your screen, start taking notes, because uh, this stuff really works. And I've used it, hit a home run in my new business model competition, and it's been on the up and up ever since. Okay. So, Will, let's just jump right in. Talk to us about uh, the nine slides that every pitch deck needs. So, listen, there's, there's a couple of things that every pitch deck needs. And a pitch deck is almost always a necessity. I've, I've sat on both the investment and the startup side of the table, uh, whether uh, – well, let's not get into that for a second. But, listen – VCs, investors, accelerators, programs like that, we see a million pitch decks and slide decks and business plans. And um, I've never, let me put this in context for you. Uh, I've never seen a, a pitch deck or a slide deck win an investment. I've seen it win competitions, but I've seen plenty of bad ones lose investments. And that's why I think it's really important. Um, and. Another time, maybe we can talk about some of my, the strategies that I've that I've sort of learned over the years about how to raise venture money and, and seed money. But um, having a pitch deck that makes sense and tells a story that makes sense really does needs to be something that everybody has. And so I've broken it down. I've done a lot of research. I've done this. I've experienced it myself. I've also uh, gone out and talked to people. I think there's a couple of slides that every pitch deck needs to have. Uh, you need to have a problem slide. You need to have a solution slide. You need to have usually a uh, demo or product slide. You need an elevator pitch. You need a market size slide. You need a business model slide, a go-to-market slide, a team slide, and you need to talk about your unfair advantage. An unfair advantage, will, that's kind of a special case. We'll get into it a little bit. 
Um, and sometimes when you're ta- when you're at a pitch event, don't do this. You need to ask for money at some point. If you're talking to venture capitalists or angels, you got to talk about what you're going to spend their money on. But we're not. Let's not get into that because that's a little that gets into some other issues, which is not worth getting into today. Um, as a uh, I'm going to do a little plug for my program. If anyone's in the Newark area or, or New York area, even wants to come out to New Jersey, I usually for one of the workshops we do at the center, we'll go over this and I'll pull out other people's um, pitches and we'll start to analyze them and talk about how they use these various principles in their pitches. And it's really fun to see real startups and talk about, oh, this guy did this and they raised three million dollars. That's crazy, right? Okay. So let's get into it, yeah? Let's, let's do talk it. about let's let's talk about some 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 of the slides that every uh, startup needs in their pitch deck. First is your problem slide. Now, you gotta remember that every investor is really facing a couple of problems. They know they know a couple of things. One is that ninety-five percent of all the startups are going to fail. And two, they know what they told their investors, what we would call limited partners, their return on their investment. So a venture capitalist is they take money from bigger banks and hedge funds and all the, all sorts of stuff and says, hey, if you give it to us and we'll deploy it in startups, we'll return capital to you at a multiplier. We need to be beating the market. So they know that 95% are going to fail. And they know that. They owe, they're going to end up having to pay money back to their investors to make their promises so they can go and stay, keep their careers as VCs. And so throughout a pitch deck, you need to tell two stories. One is, I am a company that's going to be a billion-dollar business, generally. There's, there's caveats to that. And two, this is a business that's going to survive – 5, 10, 15, 20 years. This is going to survive to stability, to exit, to IPO, to acquisition, whatever that might be for that company. It needs to survive and it needs to be a big enough market. And so when you get into and, – and keep those two things in mind when you go when we go through all of these different slide decks. So because um, each one of these slides tells one part of that story or is contributing to one part of that story. And the first is problem. What is this problem that you're trying to solve? You want to make sure that first, it's a real problem. And uh, what do I mean by that? There's a lot of fake problems out there. There are lots of things that are, uh, I call them the N of one problems. If anyone remembers their stats class uh, from high school or college or whatever, is this a problem that a just a small set of humans have. Maybe just you have this problem. Or is this a problem that actually is demand out in the world for it? Um, and two, is it big enough? Is it is it a difficult enough problem that people are willing to pay for it? Uh, at the core of a lot of entrepreneurial theory and, and um, uh, the conversation about entrepreneurship is that Switching behavior, human switching behavior is a really hard thing. So you don't have to be better than the alternative. You need to be three times better than the alternative. And so this has to be a big enough problem, a painful enough problem that people are willing to take a risk on your crazy solution. 
because you're a startup. You don't have like McDonald's or Pepsi or whatever brand behind Walmart behind your back that somebody says, hey, that's a big brand. I can trust them. I know what they're going to deliver. You're a startup. You don't have brand value yet. So you have to make sure that the problem you're solving is significant enough and painful enough that people are willing to switch whatever it is they're doing now to you. And that's why just right into the solution statement, which always comes with a problem statement. Um, keep in mind, this is the this is one of the big mistakes that I see a lot of first time entrepreneurs make is they don't understand that problems uh, solution statements are different than product or demo. So uh, I'll see an entrepreneur that says, OK, I'm going to solve. I'm going to make the next best coffee mug, whatever, right? And then the the problem is that our coffee mugs don't keep our coffee hot. The solution is not the self-heating coffee mug. The solution is we keep your coffee hot, okay? So solutions always parallel your problem. They are always in parallel to your problem. They're always, they're always solving the solution. So uh, if you walk, if you're a dog walking business, your solution is we help your dog poop and pee and get some exercise. How you do that, that's your product. Do you hire college kids? Do you have a dog walking robot? You know, whatever that crazy idea might be is great, but that's different than solution. So problem and then to balance that solution to say you can solve and that's how you're going to solve this big problem. That usually leads into elevator pitching. So um, you'll find lots of people talking about different modes of elevator pitching on the internet. Uh, go and find a couple of videos. My, my personal favorite to start off from is from uh, Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm. He's an elevator pitch format that I think is really great as a starting point. Uh, it's a relatively rigid format, but if you dig into it, uh, and practice it, you'll cut things here, add things there. So I think it's a great starting point. When you're talking over a longer format, whether it's a seven-minute pitch competition or an hour-long board, uh, board presentation to a venture capitalist firm, you're going to need a way to tie every, everyone into your basic idea. And that's why early on in every pitch, I like to see people give their elevator pitch. Very often, it's the first thing. Sometimes it'll come after problem and solution pitch, but it's always at the early um, part of a pitch. Now, now that we have the three big first ones that usually do, they set the scene, they tell the story early on on what, what it is you're doing. It's thinking about Telling the story in a compelling way is an important aspect of every pitch. Again, whether it's a VC or uh, a pitch competition or just your great aunt Ida who wants to cut you a little check to help their nephew out or whatever. So the next thing that I'm thinking through is between problem solution and elevator pitch, what can I do to really hook my audience? We don't talk about this a lot in the tech community, but there's a little bit of entertainment in pitching. It's more, you're not presenting information. You're, this isn't a report from school. This is 
getting people emotionally connected to what it is you're doing. And so one of the techniques I very much like to use in the problem solution elevator pitch part is the day in the life method. Okay. So I try and put my audience in the frame of mind of a day in the life of my customer. And I'll give you an example. This is, this is an actual business that I was working on for a little while and I had to put it down for family reasons, but I was to get back to the dog walking thing. I was building software, uh, a small ERP software for dog walking businesses. Um, my hypothesis was that there's all these kind of low, small, medium businesses that are being left out of the ERP and CRM markets and that custom solutions can solve them. And so, and it came because the dog walker that I had at the time for, for my dog, when I was working in Manhattan, um, she missing messages with her client. I go, why are you missing your messages? Turns out she manages 10 college kids. Each of them walk a dog three or four times. She gets 50 text messages between the hour of noon and 2 PM. And she forgets stuff sometimes. And I was like, well, this sounds like a problem software could solve. So how would I pitch that business? I put myself a day in the life of my customer. Imagine here, scene. Imagine you're a small business owner. You run a dog walking business. Every day, you're getting 50 to 100 text messages. And if you miss one, if you forget one, that's somebody's beloved pet. Now we're going to enter and we're going to build software that will help you make sure that you track every pet, every dog walk and every message so that you never miss one. This is walk HQ. Walk HQ is an ERP software solution for dog walking businesses. I set up with the problem statement, put them in the place of the customer. The solution wasn't the software. It was making sure they didn't miss communication with their customer. And then the elevator pitch that actually explains what it is I'm doing. So I'm emotionally hooking, hooking my uh, audience in early. I'm setting the stage of what I'm doing. So that as I get into the other slides that are part of my pitch, they're really filling in, uh, 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 filling in the color, filling in the detail of what it is I'm trying to do. But I think problem and solution elevator pitch in some form have to be at the top of every pitch deck, every, every presentation that you do. Um, okay, so that's, I need like a mental like pause for a second because those three kind of fit together. They're, they're a good cohort to go together. And then the next ones, uh, the next couple of slides are really talking about getting into why you're going to be this big business. Why are you either going to be stable or generate revenue at a, uh, at a pace that makes it worth an investor's time or worth the judge's time of a uh, pitch presentation? Most judges, I've been a judge of many pitch presentations. You're usually putting yourself in an investor mindset, by the way, for those. So if you, if you get yourself ready for an investor pitch, you're getting yourself ready for both. Um, and the other message that you really want to give with these next couple of slides is that I'm an expert in my field. 
Okay. Um, so problem solution, elevator pitch. Uh, I think I'm, I think I'm varying from the nine slides, by the way, I think I may have added one or two and it's all right. It's all good. This is, we're going to keep moving. It's great. Um, it's, I don't have, yeah, I don't have like my normal notes in front of me. So I'm just going to, and I'll just, I'll um, say this. I'll say a couple of things about what you said, right? Just give you a mental pause. Number one, the story, a day in the life that works. I did it with the podcast agency, you know, because at the time everybody was on Zoom. I think I said Tiffany's in class. She hates her life. You know, uh, she's been on lectures for eight hours a day. Unlike her friend, uh, Tracy, whose professors put their audio on a podcast. And so she can get up from her computer. She can walk. So she's all happy. She's enjoying herself. Meanwhile, while Tiffany's hating life, super yeah. uh, powerful what you said. The second yeah, thing you, you said is establish authority and credibility, right? Yeah. So that can also be like um, your background, right? What you bring to the table. We're going to get into this with unfair advantages. And mm. I know for me, I was targeting accelerators and incubators. And oh, by the way, I've done like eight of them, <laughs> you know, and I had every slide up there on the deck. So yeah. I knew exactly what I was talking about. Um, so yeah. just want to, uh, you know, applaud you on that and just say, like, listen to what he's telling you. This will be a game changer um, in your decks. Um, I don't I feel weird when you when you say nice things about me. That's, you know, the military veteran way is that we bust each other, chop, each other's chops a little bit. That's the that's the vet way. Um, listen, let's get into the next couple of slides. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to kind of skip over the product slide for a second or the demo slide for a second. Um, it, because in all honesty, it's not that important. It sounds crazy, but it's not that important. Um, especially in tech because anything's doable in tech, anything's, anything's technically doable in general. Um, and I've never seen a business fail because of its tech businesses fail because of their market or they fail because of their business model. They don't fail because of their tech. Um, and in, in general, if you have something special, you have a, a, a special problem statement or a special something that you're keying into, then uh, you may and very well will throw out your tech, throw out your product. Um, and, and most investors expect that. The, the one thing I will add to that, the one thing I, I will say about product or demo is that if you're doing this, never actually demo. Do a Wizard of Oz demo. Pre-record whatever it is. If you're if you're a software person or a hardware person, don't bring your robot or your software out and put it on the screen and share it and whatever. Pre-record it. Maybe pretend you're actually sharing it, but pre-record it. Because I guarantee you the moment you're presenting to somebody is the moment that your servers go down. And you you can't you do not want small technical bugs to be the reason that you didn't get investment. Because not that they don't believe your tech will work, they believe that you're not professional enough to make sure you're ready for a presentation. And that is an important, important piece. So if you're a software human, if you're a software person or a hardware person or a physical product person, I, I recommend if, if you can, situational dependent, of course, uh, don't actually show your tech. Show a video of it under controlled circumstances so that you don't get bugs. And then you're up there, you're presenting, you're going, oh, this normally works, I swear. You know, this is normally something that, that happens. Um, okay, so moving on from product, 
The next big thing is market sizing. Okay, so there are three elements of market sizing. And remember our two messages we're trying to get across, big markets and will survive. Um, and that's, uh, will survive to be that 5%, will survive 10 years. Um, keep in mind that that's the context that we're setting. And here's the, here's the secret of market sizing. And I've seen lots of B-school people, B-school professors talk about it. We're making it up. Almost every time we're making it up because we can't predict the future. No one can. What you want to do is put together a story that's coherent and makes sense. But no one's, I've never seen a VC, especially in the very early days, maybe once you get past a series B or later, that's a different story, but seed and A, I've never seen a VC say, okay, let's break down exactly how you came up with that math. Does that make sense? And so, and I don't, you shouldn't be deceptive, but you can purp purposely curate what your market sizing is to tell your story because you don't know what your potential is. You're taking your best guess of what you're going to be in 10 years, but we don't know, you know, no one, no one predicted COVID and the, the, the incredible industries that have popped up and the industries that have collapsed overnight. That was never in anybody's pitch deck. We can't predict the future, so we take our best guess. But don't, I see a lot of people get hung up on this. So I've seen B-School folks get really hung up on this and hooked into this. Then let me tell you, it really does not matter all that much, as long as you're not crazy and out to lunch. Okay, so there's, there's three elements of every market size slide deck in general, okay? I've seen plenty of slide decks that don't include all three. I've seen plenty of slide decks that include 20, eh, maybe not 20, but, but more than three. But in general, if you're having trouble thinking about your market sizing, these are the three things you need. You need your total available market. You need your total addressable market. And you need the serviceable, obtainable market. Okay, let's break those down. Your total, I'm gonna use an example here. We're all gonna be in the pistachio business for a second. We're all selling pistachios. We're going up against planters, guys. Okay, total available market sets the stage for how big your market is that you're going after. And it's wildly bigger than you could ever do. And it's never, ever gonna happen, okay? So it is, it is the total market that is available that you could, in theory, address. So with pistachios, we might say it's the, the total food market in the United States. If no one, bought a single hamburger, no one bought a single French fries, uh, uh, no more eggs and cheese, Taylor eggs and ham and cheese if you're from New Jersey, uh, you know, no more pork and stock, no more nothing. We just eat nothing but pistachios 24 seven. That's my total available market. That's the food market in the US. It's, it's a huge number. You're trying to set the stage that this is a huge opportunity to start to dig into. Okay, that's TAM, total available market. And then we get into uh, uh, total addressable market, sometimes called serviceable addressable market. I've seen this go both, a lot of people call it different things. This is 
in the field that you can reasonably service. This is, this is the market that you can honestly, truly service. Another way to think of it is how big would this be if you had 100% market share in your world? So for our pistachios example, it means what is the pistachio market in the United States? And again, this isn't a real number. No one actually is going to make this amount of money. This is just this is just theoretical. You're going to look at it and say, what happens if planters quits tomorrow and any other peanut and pistachio company quits tomorrow? And now my pistachio company is the only supplier of pistachios across the United States. It's impossible, right? No one's going to do that. Uh, but again, this is setting the stage for an investor to understand what the opportunities are as you grow and build your business. Okay. That's uh, serviceable, addressable market or total addressable market. Okay. If you, if you want to Google it, Google those terms. The last one, the third one is serviceable, obtainable market. That obtainable part is the important part. What's reasonably obtainable? What can you honestly, in over the long term, what can you honestly obtain? The other way to think about this is take a guess at what your revenues will be in about 10 years or so. And that's your serviceable, obtainable market. Like, what can you actually get? And um, I've seen lots of people goof this up. And I, I swear to goodness, if I hear this, some, some entrepreneur come to me and say these words to me one more time, I'm banging my head into the wall until I can't see straight anymore. If we capture just 5% of the market, we're all going to be millionaires. That, that logic is not based in reality. Nobody just captures a market share. Good market numbers are what are called bottom-up analysis. That say, oh, I'm, you know, it's a $100 billion market. I'm going to capture 1%. That's a billion dollars revenue. That's not real. That 1%, you're pulling that out of your rear end. That's not real. Do a bottom up. Bottom up means I look at how many people I can reasonably get to in my customer segment, and I, I measure how much they're spending on my product. So for me, I might look and say, well, I'm going to do a Facebook ad campaign, a Google AdWord campaign. I'm going to do some direct outreach. I'm going to connect to these people. And, you know, I think I can talk to half a million people. I think I can convince half a million people to buy my pistachios across the East Coast. And oh, the people who love pistachios, maybe they spend a hundred bucks on pistachios per year. That's a $50 million market. And that's, that's how you do good market numbers, bottom up, not top down. If you turn out a big number and you're taking a percentage at it, I'm going to laugh you out of the room. I'm going to kick you in the shins because Will Lutz told you, don't do that. If you ever come to me with a top down, I'm going to, oh, I'm so mad. Come to me with a bottom up. How many people are there in this world? And uh, how much do they spend on your thing? Or how much are you going to charge for your thing reasonably? And that digs into other business principles, such as who is your target customer? How are you going to get to them? How, how can you reasonably get 
50 or 500,000 people, half a million people to pay attention to you? And do you find the right customers that really care about your thing? And that connects back to problem and solution statement at the beginning. Can I really find customers who really care about this thing? And I can give you, I can give you another example in a second, but I want to keep moving because I want to keep an eye on time. Um, we're good. Do, we're good on we're time. Good on time. We're going to make this. Excellent. Yeah. This is an audio masterclass, y'all. This ain't just, oh, you know, I'm just going to jump in and get quick 10 minutes. You're going to teach me how to make a million dollars or billion dollar exit. No, this is an audio masterclass. So those of you okay. that are in, in the fight looking to raise capital, you know, I really, really uh, want you to lean into this. I'm, I'm really, by the way, Mike, I'm really, really bad at um, self-pacing. I, I, I almost always have a clock like on my computer counting down to make sure I, I don't if I'm talking that or I'm teaching a class or something. Um, so, all right. So here, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. I this this great young woman, lovely young woman. Uh, I'm not going to say her name, but if you're listening to this, come back. I haven't seen you in a while. Come back and say hi. Um, she had plantar fasciitis and she was a bartender. So, which means she wore heels a lot. And she had designed a shoe insert to help women who wore heels a lot with plantar fasciitis. All right. So uh, she came to me and I said, who is your target customer? Who are you going after? And she said, women who wear heels. I said, well, listen, that's, that's who your target customer is when you're Walmart or McDonald's or Pepsi, but you're a startup. You're going to get your ass kicked by Dr. Scholl's every day of the week. Dr. Scholl's going to kick your ass. Um, you need to you need to find a target customer segment that you can cut your teeth on and the people who really need what it is you're doing. Um, I know I'm, this is a little bit of a segue from the slide decks, but this is really important, so I'm going to dig into this a second. There's four properties of a good early customer. They have the problem. They know they have the problem. They have the money to solve the problem, and they have some crummy Band-Aid solution that's attempting to solve the problem and not doing a good job. So I sent this woman. We, we did this. We worked on it. She came back to me a few weeks later. She said, I figured it out. Women attorneys who work in cities, who are litigators, do they have the problem? Yeah, they're on their feet. They're on heel. They're litigators. They're in front of a judge all day. They're in their heels. They have a lot of foot pain. They, have, they know they have the problem. In this case, we're going to say yes. If you have foot pain, you generally know you have foot pain. Not the case for all problem statements, but this one, yeah, kind of obvious. They have the money to solve the problem. They're lawyers. The running joke is that lawyers have more money than they should. So, yeah, we're going to say yeah there. They have some crummy Band-Aid solution that's attempting to solve the problem but not doing a good job of it. Every attorney, female attorney that she spoke to, behind her desk – in her big lawyery office with the big oak desk, hid slippers, flip-flops, or flats. Every single one. So when she talked about, getting back to slide decks for a second, when she talked about market sizing, what was reasonably obtainable for her were these women attorneys who were on their feet, on in heels all day, every day, who needed this help. They're the ones banging on the table saying, please give me this solution. I'm in pain. And that's what's obtainable. That's a story. And by the way, there's thousands of them. 
And for when we get into go-to-market strategy in a second, she can do things that a Dr. Scholz can't. She can go to bar association meetings all over the U.S. and say, hey, you know, women, you know, there's women attorney meetups. There's women bar association, these groups, these support groups on online and in real life where these people are supporting each other and they're building community. And that's a community she could plug in and say, I think I've solved a problem that you uniquely have. And that's, that's an obtainable market. That's reasonably obtainable. Okay. Moving on from that for a second, because I can get into early customer theory all day long, and then I'm going to move the computer. We're going to be on the whiteboard, and I'm going to get in teaching mode. And, uh, man, that's that's a whole mess we don't want to get in. we got to focus. As entrepreneurs, we have this problem. We don't focus enough. Okay. Market sizing gets to business model. Okay. So there's a big market out there. How are you going to capture some of it? How are you going to make money? That's the business model. Okay. Now, business model is often a word that is overused. It's a phrase that gets used a lot. It has many different meanings. In this case, when we're talking about a slide deck, what we really mean is the very basics of how you're going to get make money. Okay. I recommend keeping it as simple as humanly possible. In a slide deck, especially in a pitch competition, you might only have a couple of seconds to cover your business model. And really complicated business models are hard to deploy. They're hard to execute on. And entrepreneurs need to be excellent executors. We need to execute on vision. Um, so the uh, business model you want is going to be super, super simple. Very, very obvious. And then what I usually like to do in my business models is that I, I tend to use some other numbers to sort of illustrate how powerful a simple business model is. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Airbnb is a really great example. Every time you book on Airbnb, they make a 15% commission. Huge, multi-million, billion dollar, I have no idea what Airbnb is worth right now, billion dollar business, millions of dollars of revenue, 15% commission. That's it. That's it. It's that simple. Okay. And then in that slide deck, in that slide, I would build in some illustrations on how big, how powerful that is. Well, I go to my target customers and I charge them a hundred bucks a month. I charge them that commission. And this is how many customers I'm targeting. That means in the first year, I'm going to make, you know, a million dollars, whatever it is in my first year. Keep a very simple business model, okay? Um, and then from that, build into more complex things, okay? Um, next step, go to market. Okay, these two go hand in hand, business model and go to market. Go to market might is a, just a fancy word for how do, I, how do I get out there? How do I market? How do I get my message out there? Um, keep in mind, almost every every business I've ever seen is falls into a one of two dichotomy. You're either a sales business or a marketing business. I've yet to see, especially in early stage startups, early stage businesses, I have yet to see a business do both. Listen, if you're opening a coffee shop or a bagel shop or or one of these sort of storefront businesses, 
where you have low margins and high volume needs to keep yourself sustainable. If you go person to person along the street and say, hey, will you try my coffee? I don't think that you're going to be very successful. You need a marketing campaign. Meanwhile, if you're at GE and you're selling jet engines, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to pay for ad time at the Super Bowl because the amount of people who can buy jet engines, there might be 10 of them in the entire world or in the entire United States rather. And so it makes more sense, more efficient to go after sales. Um, I will add this small, I'll add this small caveat to that. In my experience, lean more, the earlier the startup, lean more towards sales, a sales strategy uh, versus a marketing strategy. Uh, the, a lot of marketing for early stage startups means content marketing, getting yourself on the internet, SEO, social. And the reality is that the, the internet is a very big place, much bigger than it was 10 years ago. And it's hard to be heard above the din of the crowd. Um, and I, I think that early with early stage startups, before you worry in general about getting customer two, customer 10, customer 100, get customer one first. So at least do your first customer as a sales process versus a marketing process. Um, in my opinion, that tends to work better. But try when you're getting back to pitch the pitch deck side. This is so get off on different branches. Getting back to the pitch uh, deck stuff for a second. Think through different ways that you can reach your customers. Okay. A good investor is going to look at your go-to-market and say, one of these or two of these aren't going to work out. We can't predict the future, but we know, like, I mean, come on, we know that not everything's going to work perfectly. You're always going to hit bumps in the road. You're always going to hit roadblocks. And, and the best entrepreneurs tend to have multiple options. So if we try this and it works great, we double down on it. If we try you know, option B and it doesn't work, we throw it away and try option C. And if option C works, we double down on it and move on, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'd like to see in go-to-market plans have a couple of options. The One of the uh, really great tools I've seen is using conferences. Conferences and meetups are really great ways. If you If there's a community that's around your customer segment, use that community. Uh, I was doing a, when I was in grad school, this is a grad school, I was doing some work for a startup. We we're engaging a coding uh, product, uh, teaching kids how to code at very early stages. And we were selling it to museums and schools. We realized that, going back to the four properties of an early customer, the people who really had that need were stay-at-home parents who were stay-at-home um, stay-at-home teachers, stay-at-home schools, homeschoolers. Sorry, the word was escaping. Homeschoolers. Mil a lot of military vets in this in this uh, audience, right? You understand this. There's a lot of homeschooling parents, right? We uh, that when you when your kids if your kids move around every two or three years, it's often nicer to have that stability of a stay-at-home schooling rather. So it's very popular among military families. Um, we realize is that scam home parents were nervous about not having the technical skills to prepare their kids in a technical world. So this, this product really spoke to these people. And so we figured out that there's meetup groups and online communities and conferences 
and all of these other avenues, these channels, we, what we might call marketing channel in real life where they, they naturally come together and your sales or, or marketing message has a much bigger effect because they're naturally coming together. Um, we talked about that with the, with the female attorneys earlier. And so it, it was an excellent go-to-market strategy for this company because the other things that they were selling to didn't have quite the same community built around it the way that homeschooling parents do. They, they support each other in a really positive way, and they share resources in a really positive way. And so engaging that community can be really great. Um, I've seen people really successfully go to Reddit and use subreddits to get their message out. Now, you don't want to go to an online community and say, hey, I'm trying to sell this thing. Would you buy it? because no one likes being sold to, but that's okay as an early stage startup because you don't wanna just make a sale, you wanna engage with a customer, get feedback, make sure you're producing something of value. And so what I would say is go to those communities and say, listen, I'm, I'm building this thing, I think it can really help you. I'm looking for some early users, some early customers, would anyone be interested? Don't try and sell them. It comes across as disingenuous. Anyway, so back to go to market. Keep keep it simple. Try to do three, uh, uh, do multiple. I like sets of threes. It, it comes down to the art of listener attention. People tend to think in threes, so sets of threes really make sense. Have yourself a couple of options: conferences, uh, existing communities, existing social groups. They're really great. One of the things that I hate as a go-to-market is if someone just puts like Facebook on their slides. What is? Are you paying for Facebook ads? Did you did you happen into a great community on Facebook that really, you know, piles into this? Tell me about what you know. Give me more detail. Um. Yeah. Okay. So that's go-to-market. Uh, next one I want to talk about uh, is competition. So competition is really, really important to talk about, and it's not for why you think. A common misconception that entrepreneurs uh, talk about is why we're better than the competition. And that is not the message you want to send to investors. You want to talk about why you're different than the competition, but not why you're better. And you definitely don't want to say we're first to market. No one's doing this. We have no competition. That's another one where I'm going to come and find you and I'm going to kick you in the shins. If you ever put on a slide deck, we have no competition. Okay. I will find you and I will kick you in the shins. Um, everybody has competition. Everybody has competition. And you don't want to be the first. If you're the first to market and you have no competition, a good investor, a good judge is going to say why. Either, why is no one else doing this? The world's a big place. There's 300, was it 330 million Americans in the United States? Is it 330? 300 million, 330 million, something like that. Why has none of those 330 million people started this business before? Well, it's either it's not a big enough problem or no one's willing to pay for it. You do not want to be first to market. But as a, as a bit of an aside there, if you go to the, Stanford professors who wrote that original paper on advantages of being first to market, they've come out since and written papers about how wrong they were. Okay, so 
You don't want to be first to market. Another way to look at entrepreneurship is it's a series of mitigating risk. And the biggest risk that you have is will people buy my thing? So if there's a good competitor out there, then they've mitigated that risk for you. They've done the work. They put all of the energy into it that says this is a real need and people are willing to pay for it. That's a big risk. They've done you a huge favor. Don't say there are no competitors. Just don't. You kill, you kill my soul a little bit when people do. Um, there's lots of ways to visualize this. Different investors have different uh, ways to visualize this and think about this. Do you talk about other customers? I actually do, do – I do like a XY – what's called an XY graph. If you guys have never seen this, Google an XY competition graph. I think it's a – especially in crowded marketplaces, I think it's a great way to show where there's holes where you can create some value. Um, uh, Steve Blank has the rose petal graph if you're, if you're really on the cutting edge of stuff. Uh, the checkbox graph, also very good. Great ways to visualize competitive markets. And you, again, you don't want to talk about why you're better. You don't want to talk about why no one else is doing it. You want to talk about why you're different. How are you going to be more engaging? How are you going to capture this market in a compelling way? Okay, so moving on from there. Business model, uh, market sizing business model, go to market, and um, competition kind of sit in the same bucket. And you're doing a couple things. One is saying, again, Remembering you're saying that this is going to be a big business and it's going to survive to exit or survive to sustainability. And, and the context behind this, these four groups of slides or whatever is that um, you're saying that you're an expert in this field. You know what you're talking about. You are the expert who can execute this. And that is what brings us to our uh, kind of our last standalone slide that's really important, which is your team. There's a message that you need to send with investors, and it's why this team, why right now? Okay, so why are you the right person to execute on this? And many, many, many startups miss out on this. There's plenty of startups out there that are not the right team at the right time, okay? So you wanna talk about your team at the right place at the right time. Uh, there's a thumb rule for this that I've never, I've actually, I don't think I've ever coached a startup team that actually can hit these, this thumb rule, but generally you want someone who knows, has industry or technical expertise. You want someone who's a sales hustler or marketing genius, and you want someone who's built startups before and knows how to build startups. If you can get those three people on your team, you're really set. You might want to talk about an advisory board or a board of directors that can fill in some of those some of those gaps if you don't have them on your team. And I think it's a really important thing to do for all startups. I don't care who you are or what you're doing. It's really important for all startups to build community of support around themselves and, and to build a group of people who will support you and open doors for you whether they're investors, whether they're just people who care about you, they can be family, they can be friends, I don't care. Um, I, I think that if you can build a team of advisors who hit those three things, if you can't in your founding team, you're really set, you're setting yourself up for success. So 
this really leads into the last important point. And, and this is really important because it shouldn't be a slide on its own. It generally is not. Sometimes it is, but generally it's not. And it's a concept called unfair advantage. Your unfair advantage is not first mover advantage and it's not competitive advantage. It's unfair. What are the things about what it is that you're doing that other people cannot replicate easily? Okay, I'm going to pause and let that sink in for a hot second. What are you doing that other people cannot replicate easily? That's your unfair advantage. There's lots and lots of things that can be unfair advantage. It can be industry experience. It can be uh, if you've got a patent or a trademark or some other form of IP, it could be that. It could be um, your team, really killer team. You go to these pitch competitions and you'll see people talk about their team and they've got an Ivy League education. And what they're trying to say is that we've got this unfair advantage that other people don't. It could be you're a member of some group or some support program. If you graduated from Y Combinator, or if you're a graduate of Bunker Labs and you have the Bunker Labs network behind you, that is an unfair advantage that other people cannot replicate. Okay. And then that kind of, this leads into a point that I always want to make with military vet entrepreneurs. One of the unfair advantages that you guys have, that we have as military veterans, is our community of military veterans. We are an incredibly loyal group of people, and we support ourselves. We support each other. We There's not – if someone cold calls me on LinkedIn or cold emails me or what cold messages me on LinkedIn rather or cold calls me, and they, they pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm a Navy nuke or, hey, I'm a mill vet. Can you give me 15 minutes of your day? I will always say yes, and there is not a group of humans on this earth that I won't do that to. And I and I, I believe that most military vets are the same way. Um, and there's lots of us out there in the world in, in executive roles and doing great things, and we always tend to support our community. And so being a military vet, especially if it aligns well with what your business is and what you're trying to do in the world, that can very well be your unfair advantage. And And – these unfair advantages, again, I, I mentioned this before, they tend not to be their own slide. If you've got IP, IP tends to be its own slide. You got to talk about IP if you've got a patent. Um, but generally, unfair advantage is going to be highlighted somewhere along the exist the, pre, the slides that we've talked about already. Somewhere, you're going to talk about your team. Oh, uh, Steve is a uh, military vet um, and – we're making this software for jet engines. Well, yeah, every Air Force vet and Navy pilot out there goes and works for the Air Force, the aerospace industry when they leave. That's a huge recruiting tool. So there's a huge network that you can plug into that your competitors just can't. And that's, that's your unfair advantage. And it comes across in team. It comes across in go-to-market. It comes across in all of these other slide decks. All of these other – sorry, all these other slides in your deck, what do you have that's, that's unfair that other people can't do? And everyone's got an unfair advantage. There's, there's a little bit of self-effacement. There's self-awareness. That's a tough thing there. We, we started with taking off your armor at the top of this um, and, and feeling 
feeling imposter syndrome, which every good entrepreneur does. And in fact, you kind of want to lean into, which is a whole nother topic. You all have an unfair advantage. Everyone's got something. It's just a matter of identifying it, clarifying it, refining it in a way that you can communicate to an investor or a judging panel that makes you compelling. You know, we were just talking about this at the intro and to explain it to our listeners, right? You know, I go by Iron Mike Stedman because I'm the founder of Ironbound Boxing and Ironbound Media. All right. Now, if somebody wants to get into boxing today and start coaching, I've been doing it for 15 years at this point. I also have a gym. I also have all this other stuff. So I got a little bit of a 15 year head start on someone. That doesn't mean that they can't do it. It just means the fact of like my unfair advantage is I've been doing this 15 years. I'm nationally recognized for it. Right. So that's something that sets me apart. And I was just taking some notes as Will was talking. And one of the things that also sounds like is like, what's the moat you have around your business model? You know, what's something that like makes it easy, harder for other people to enter the space and, and have the relationships that you already have? You know, one of the things you just talked about was being a veteran. That is an unfair advantage, especially when you got, I don't know, you target an industry or a company that has 100 veterans working at the working at the company or something. Right. So just get creative with it and think about it. Um and uh, really lean into it. I have I have this uh, I have a, an old buddy of mine I served with. He's starting a company. I don't want to say I don't want to say exactly the company name is because I, I didn't get his permission to use his name. Um, but he's doing temperature sense underwater temperature sensing. Underwater temperature sensing. We were submarine officers together. We were we were in the submarine force. The amount of people in that industry, the underwater, the what we would call blue tech industry that he knows because submarine officers go into that. That's what we do, you know, and he can plug into that. So he talks about that when he goes and, and, and talks to investors. He knows everybody in there. And and even if he doesn't, he can knock on the door and someone's going to pick up the pick up the phone because they say, oh, you were on the USS Miami. Great. So, you know, I was on the USS Providence or whatever. Um, it, military, your military veteran network, I, I it's a hard I think military veterans, we don't like to ask for favors. That's something that we struggle with a lot. We, self-sufficiency, not being a burden to others is something that we that, that gets kind of ingrained into us in our in our veteran process. But it's it's such a big asset that I, I get comfortable with the uncomfortable. Get comfortable asking for favors and nothing will make somebody happier than helping an, a buddy out, even if they're a new buddy. You know. So, uh, yeah, just double, triple down on that. That's some, again, with Bunker Labs, this is, it's a whole support network of people who, who are been through this with you that are military veteran entrepreneurs that, that are in, you know, doing the same things you're doing, going through the same struggles, the same lessons. And man, is it, we support each other, man. We support each other more than any other community I've seen. So it's it's absolutely an unfair advantage. What um, I want to what I want to yeah, jump into next, right, is I want us to talk about, you know, we've already gone through kind of like what to have on the slides. Let's talk about uh, briefly some pitch hacks, because I know one of the things that you told me early on was use your slide titles as an opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this <laughs> this is funny. So let, let's talk about that one to start off with is think about every square inch of your slide deck. 
every square inch is an opportunity to get your message across stronger in a more compelling way. And a common mistake I see, because we get ingrained on how to give presentations, either through our schooling or God forbid the military presentations we used to give were so bad. Um, military, not good. We're not good at giving presentations. It's not something we're good at. Uh, and, and it's about presenting information and trying to capture as much information as possible. So we're categorizing things. This is my problem statement. This is my solution statement. This is my tech. Well, pitching is not about presenting information and categorizing information. It's about convincing someone that what you have is compelling. It's about convincing them that you're a good investment or convincing them that you have the most potential. And I think that you need to, everybody should take advantage of every dang square inch of that, that presentation slide deck. And that means titles. If you're gonna include titles, which are not necessary in every context, if you're gonna include titles, then you gotta make them count. Don't say, this is my problem. Say, this is a big problem. Don't say, this is our go-to-market. Say, our marketing strategy makes sense. You know, Don't say, this is our team. Say, the killer team that's going to solve this right. These titles are great, great ways to get your message across, especially if you have a group of people or investors that don't have a lot of time. They might just skim the titles, uh, depending on how they're reviewing your slide decks. Um, hack number two. I'll get into a second hack. Have multiple slide decks. This is a very common, uh, very often given advice, but I'm going to change it a little bit. So most people will tell you, change your slide deck based on your audience. And that's true. You should do that. What I don't see enough people do is uh, have slide decks based on format. So I, when I've been pitching my startups, I'll have a 10 slide slide deck, and then I'll have a 30 or 40 page slide deck behind the scenes. So if I'm printing it out, that's called a leave behind deck. I'll have 30 to 40 pages that goes into more detail. It's a lot more wordy. It's not easily to present. And I might leave that behind. So if they want to read their material later after I've left the room, they have more detail. And then when I'm presenting, I want to make sure I have a very visually compelling presentation. I want to make sure that this is, this looks good. It usually means lots of pictures, really bold text, very little text. I, you can you can look up how to do the art of presentations. You want people paying attention to you, not your slide decks. You don't want people reading walls of text. So it's very minimal. It's very visual. It's accentuating my message but it's not easy to read. So I always have two versions, an easy to read leave behind and a, a presentation version. Um, next slide, next, next pitch deck hack, go find successful pitch decks, whether on YouTube or uh, there's, there's lots of great examples. There's even businesses that just do pitch decking now uh, slide bean is a great example slides to go I think has lots of great formats go you can find some of the big tech companies have now publicized their pitch decks go find I think Airbnb's series B might be out there on the internet somewhere go look at successful pitch decks and there's a there's an old there's an old phrase great writers borrow or good writers borrow great writers steal 
I would never encourage plagiarism. However, learn from success. Look at what other people have done in the past and learn from it. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's something that a lot of people don't do enough of. And that goes along with the actual art of the pitch itself, which is why I invite anybody, to, if anyone's up in northern New Jersey or in New York, come out to Newark. We do, we do a review of some successful pitch decks, and we talk about this in my incubator. It's, it's actually really fun to do. We'll go to various um, accelerator demo days around the country that have put their stuff on YouTube, and we'll break them down as to what worked and what didn't work. It's, it's a really good exercise. Um, I was going to say, maybe I can get you yeah. to do a video with us and, you know, we'll have it and we can show examples of good ah. and bad pitch decks. Yes. Yeah. As long as, as long as you let me critique yours, I'll just critique yours live Absolutely. in front of everybody. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. That'd be great. Um, that, that works. I want to add a listen, comment so, so, too. And this is one of my hacks. Yeah, go ahead. I want to add. I want to add a hack too. One of the things that is important in any pitching is really instilling confidence, right? So, and one of the ways a business model I feel can instill confidence is by showing some sort of traction. You know, whether it's yeah. hey, you know, we've got uh, some pre-sales of this committed, or we've already sold this or whatever. Because it goes back to what you said before. We're all really making it up, and you have this hypothesis of that you have something that people are willing to pay you for. And I feel that by going into any kind of presentation, having even just a little bit of traction to validate the business model is a is an advantage. Is a is a it instill confidence in the investors. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, that probably should be its own slide deck when I give this talk and and make it one of them. It could be its own uh, slide. Is traction. Um, I tend to gear this towards so th this conversation. And the slides that we talked about was really geared towards the very, very early stage folks who probably don't have traction yet. However, there's always traction. Usually, it's usually customer discovery, customer interviews can can be early stage traction. Customer lessons can be early stage traction. If you've actually gotten out there and sold product, man, you better talk about it. Yeah, make that make that your unfair advantage. Make that. Make that really a really important thing. Yeah, if traction is something that you have, you should talk about it. I, I totally buy. I'm totally down for that. Um, and and again, as as you you get later stage, traction will become more important, and it'll become obvious that's more important because you're going to want to talk about your wins. Because one of the as, especially as you get later in the investment process or later in the development process, commercialization commercialization process, depending on what you're doing, the conversation changes. Um, early on, you're 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 taking a stab in the dark. I'm guessing I'm going to be a billion dollar company. I'm guessing that we're going to survive to be in that five percent. But the conversation changes, and it's about momentum as you get more traction. It's, it's going to investors and saying, I've got this great opportunity, and if you don't jump into this boat right now, you're going to miss out. And here's all my traction. And, and you know, I, I want you as part of this because we have a lot of, you know, cross-pollination. We have a lot of things that we can do together. Um, and, you know, FOMO is real in the investment community. Everybody wishes that they were the ones who invested in Facebook and Twitter and Amazon. Everybody wishes that, and every investor is afraid that they're going to miss out on the next Facebook or Amazon or Twitter. And so if you could tell a story using your traction that says, 
you know, this is a rocket ship, man, and we want you to be part of it. And if you don't, that's that's on you. Um, that can be and the, and so I I so let me switch gears for a second. And I know I'm I'm kind of steering away from pitch hacks for a little bit. The way that I talk about this stuff is very much in the high growth tech field because that's the world that I live in. However, this a lot of this applies as well to small and medium businesses as well. There might be some different pivots, some different perspectives on these topics, but they it still applies in a lot of the same ways. Um, so, you know, if I'm talking about traction, I might not say, you might not talk about the rocket ship. I might say, man, every customer is coming back and using us over and over and over again. Retention, retention, retention. That's so much of a bigger issue in small medium business. In, in high growth tech businesses, it's about that rocket ship growth. In small businesses, it's about retention. Um, and so, you know, that can be your traction too. Uh, and so if those of you are listening to this or, or watching this or whatever, and you're saying, man, Will's only talking about software, high growth, Silicon Valley style stuff, this applies to small business too. Um, it's just that that's the language in which, cause that's the world I live in. That's the language that I use to describe it. And going back to what you said previously, and this is for what I've seen within the bunker, especially when people are trying to achieve liftoff, you know, we, everybody thinks you can just focus on marketing, 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 have customers magically happen. But what puts small businesses out of, out of, uh, out of the fight, not have enough cash flow, right? What puts startups out of the fight, not having enough cash flow. So I'm a fan of what you said early on which accomplishes what we're talking about and getting traction and confidence is not just focusing on marketing activities just to look busy, but getting out there and actually generating sales, whether you're a small business or you're an early stage startup. Yeah. The, yeah. I'm, I totally agree. I totally agree. I'm going to jump. Actually, what you said sparked a memory in my brain, a thought in my brain about another small business, a small like sort of pitch hack. Um, and I don't know if hack's the right word, but we'll go with it. If you're in the startup community, um, we talked about everyone's going to give you the advice, modify your pitch based on your audience. Keep in mind that there are uh, communities, broad communities and, and ethoses and, and general methodologies in different places of the world. So, yeah, I'm going to pay attention to my audience, but even beyond that, if I'm pitching in San Francisco, the heart of high-speed venture capital, I'm going to emphasize different things than I am if I'm in the New York East Coast area, which is the center of the financial capital markets world. It's a little more risk-averse. It's a little more stable. The business model is more important than my growth or go-to-market. Um, and I, I keep in mind those broader communities of where I am. If I'm in the Midwest and I'm pitching, it's a very different community. If you're in Austin and you're at South by Southwest at some event, it's a very different community. And keeping those in mind, even more broad community strokes can be, in a, can be the difference between um, you know, winning and losing a pitch competition or winning or losing investment. Um, that brings me to one other thing that I, that I wanted – I have to get off my chest about pitch competitions. This is – this is something that I absolutely have to get off my chest about pitch competitions. I talk about this, I teach this, I help people with this stuff all the time. When I was a student and doing pitch comp and with my startup and doing pitch competitions all the time, I almost never won them. I was 
I rarely won pitch competitions. And here's the thing about pitch competitions that people don't talk about. And, and I can say this because I've been a judge of many now. It's a tough thing being a judge because you often get some great, great companies and great startups. And one of the things that drives me nuts is when people leave a pitch competition and they don't have that gold medal or whatever that big check size is, and they go home and they say, man, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And that is just not the case. And um, let me tell you, you might it might just be, it very often is that it's not that you're bad, it's that you're in a really good field. This is, there's lots of really great people out there. And some people are good at pitching. Some people are great at running a business. Some people are in the right place at the right time and have the right judges that have the right experience that matches with their thing. And that doesn't mean those that don't win are bad businesses. It just means you didn't win that competition. And so the amount of times I see students or startup founders come back to me and say, man, this sucks. I really, you know, I thought I was in a great spot and then I didn't win this pitch competition. I was really jazzed for maybe I should do something. No, no, it just means you didn't win the pitch competition. Maybe it's that the whole field is really good this year and they were had the judges had a tough choice picking picking the best of, you know, the, the old joke, the the lesser of evils in pitch competitions. It's the it's the exact opposite. You, you have to do your best to decide between, you know, a lot of really good options. And so the there's a whole industry around pitch competitions that sometimes can get can have some negative side effects that those of us who run these things lose track of. And so if you're ever in a pitch competition or you're pitching to a VC and, and you don't win or you don't get your investment, that's okay. It doesn't mean you have a bad business. It just might mean you have the wrong VC or the VC is looking at other options that fit better with them. Um, and that's something we don't talk about that enough in the startup community. So I know we, this has been a long episode because they really, we're going to call this a masterclass. This is an audio masterclass on setting yourself up uh, for a pitch, putting together that world-class pitch deck. But one of the things I want to do as we start to close out is, are there any save rounds you have, you know, as we wrap this interview up? I will say this about pitch decks, and, and I'm going to reiterate something I said up at the top. Pitch decks will never get you an investment. They might win you a pitch competition, but they'll never get you a VC. However, a bad pitch deck will lose you a pitch competition, and it will lose you a potential investor. So what the, the, the obvious sort of question is, what does get you the win? What does get you the investment? And in my experience, and especially the earlier stage you are, relationships and who you know matters more than what you know. And that usually leads me to a discussion on relationship building strategies, um, especially people who are investors or important people or advisors that you want to have be engaged. And they're busy people. They have their own lives. Um, they they want to support you, but they do have their own world that they need to pay attention to. This is not a pitching hack. This is a startup hack. One of the best habits that startups can get into is sending out a people who love me email. This might be advisors. This might be future investors. It's a it's an update email of behind the curtains on what you're doing. 
maybe some numbers on what you're doing. And I send it monthly. Uh, even projects that I'm doing here at the university, if I'm building, if I'm spinning up a big project, I'll engage people with like kind of a monthly update email and I'll use a, an agile or a scrum framework uh, to talk about it. What are the things I've done since the last email? What do I plan on doing in the next month? And where am I having trouble with? And I advise any entrepreneur who wants to get on my radar and chat with me, I love it when I get these because I can, I, I got to run a center here. I got to do all the stuff that I have to do for my life. And then once a month, I read through this real fast. I look at where they're getting stuck on. And if I can pull the resource to help them, I'll pull it. And if you're engaging an investor, this is a great way to build a relationship and build data points towards success. Because investors are getting, I think the average number is 10 to 15 pitch decks a day. And you can build a beautiful pitch deck. You can listen to a podcast like this. You can, you know, and you can have nothing behind the scenes, but put together a beautiful pitch deck. They want to know what's real. They want to know what, what actually is out there in the world and doing real stuff. And so showing that this isn't just a hobby, this isn't just a crazy idea you had, you're actually dedicated to executing on it. I, I love monthly update emails. It's so simple. You can do it in like a minute or two. Set a calendar reminder for yourself. Send update emails to the people who care about you. Um, any advisors, anytime you meet a new VC and you think that they might be interested, instead of asking them for money, say, hey, you know, I do these monthly update emails of advisors and mentors and stuff. Can I put you on the list? And then when you are ready to raise money, it's a really it's a really great way to engage in these people because, listen, the numbers are, I think the stats are you have to talk to 100, you have to kiss 100 pigs, right? You have to talk to about 100 VCs before you get the four or five you need to raise around. You don't have the energy to maintain coffee meetings and dinner meetings and relationships with investors ongoing for six, 12 months. So these update emails, which you can do for a minute or two once a month, can keep these people engaged, help feel like they're involved, give them a way to help you. Um, I know it's a little off from pitching, but I really do think that along with a good pitch deck, it can, it can be a recipe for success for a lot of entrepreneurs. No, that's great. No, thank you for sharing that. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like taking notes down this entire, this entire presentation. So yeah, Will, where's, where's my, where's my iron bound mic update good. email, man. It's coming. Let's go. This. So Will, this. where, where can people find you at? How can they get a hold of you to kind of keep these conversations going and uh, yeah, if, full, full transparency. One of the things I'm even thinking about is as we continue to build out this platform, love having you as a recurring guest, maybe bring you on oh. to talk about fundraising. And then I would love yeah. to even do a video demo on uh, what makes a good pitch deck. I love I love tearing apart pitch decks. It's one of the things I enjoy doing. I know it's a it's a small subset of the, the investment and entrepreneurial community, but it's one I really enjoy doing. Um, uh, and I have a lot of a lot of stuff that I can talk about in this. I also have some very strong feelings about what works and doesn't work on the VC side. Um, my incubator is probably the best way to get a hold of me. VentureLink.org. I think I got my mug here, venturelink.org. It, it's the incubator at, at NJIT. It's where I spend most of my time. Um, also, NJII, New Jersey Innovation Institute, njii.com. You can see stuff about me. Get You can get my email. You can get my link. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm uh, The contact forms on venturelink.org go straight. I, I see every one of them. So say, hey, you saw me on this 
on this podcast and I'd love to chat with you. Always happy to, to spend 15, 30 minutes, whatever, with an entrepreneur, even more so if they're military vet entrepreneurs. Love me some military vet entrepreneurs. Um, yeah, they, reach out. I, I, I love it. I love it. Well, that's, Will, the sort of been, thing, that's the sort of thing I do for fun. Well, Will, uh, on behalf of the bunker, I want to say it's a pleasure uh, having you here. And we appreciate you spending so much time with us, sharing all your knowledge and insight. And uh, for our listeners, do me a favor and make sure you subscribe to the Transition Podcast and newsletter on Substack at the, at the link below. Uh, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to put together a newsletter post on uh, some of the comments that uh, Will made today and uh, also get some more contributions and be able to plug it in the newsletter. Again, I release a newsletter every Tuesday and a podcast every Thursday. And uh, what Substack allows us to do is it allows you to leave a comment about each episode. And if you have any questions about your own venture or your own deck, uh, be sure to post them. Um, I'm always looking for content and would love to learn what you all are struggling with uh, in your own ventures. If you want to get plugged into the Bunker Lab ecosystem, make sure you visit www.bunkerlabs.org uh, and select the city nearest to you. Sign up for a local newsletter and attend one of our networking events. It's that simple. From there, be sure to get connected at Bunker Online, where you can learn about our many different programs to support your entrepreneurial journey. We have programs that will take you from idea to invoice, incubate you, and position to go alongside other founders and CEOs. Register today by clicking connect at bunkerlabs.org. Will, thanks again. And for everyone that's tuning in, until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week.